Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. My guest today is the wonderful Will Schwabe, author of many incredible books, including the just-released We Should Not Be Friends. Symbiotica is one of the fastest-growing health and wellness companies in the country, which seems well-deserved as they use only clean, premium ingredients in their formulas, which means no seed oils, no fillers, no additives, and no artificial ingredients. I really like Symbiotica because many of their formulations are liquid or liposomal, which means that you can literally squirt a pouch of their vitamin C into your mouth and head out the door. It's legitimately delicious. Or if it's their vanilla cream flavored magnesium, you can squirt a pouch into your mouth, brush your teeth and go to bed. No sleepy girl mocktail required. They have a delicious berry flavored bioavailable B12 that you simply pump into your mouth along with a citrus berry flavored glutathione, an adaptogenic brain health blend that's vanilla chai flavored, and pretty much everything else that you're likely looking for in the vitamin aisle to add to your routine. Though you don't actually need to find a vitamin aisle because Symbiotica ships straight to your door via subscription, which amplifies the convenience factor. Essential for me when it comes to establishing routines that I can set and forget. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code THREAD for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use code THREAD for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. A conversation that I hope this book sparks, because it's such a fun conversation, is the conversation about like gay men being friends with straight men, but also straight women being friends with straight men. Like being, you know, being friends, like a lot of times writings on friendship talk about women and their best friends or straight men and their like bro friends or even gay men and their gay friends. But I would love to see more writing about friendships across these artificial gender lines. So says Will Schwalbe, someone I've had the pleasure of knowing for a long time. In fact, our lives have overlapped in strange and magical ways, a testament really to the way that we are all interconnected, sometimes improbably. This type of magic is really the focus of his latest book. Besides being a longtime venerated book editor, Will has written four books of his own, including one of my all-time favorites. It's called The End of Your Life Book Club, and it's a memoir about his mother, who died from pancreatic cancer. In her final years, Will and his mom read together and discussed their lives through the prism of books. It is beautiful. And his latest book, which we discussed today, is also incredibly and quietly moving. It's called We Should Not Be Friends. It's about Will and a guy named Chris Maxey, or Maxey, 
who Will met his senior year of college in the 80s. Maxie was a world-class wrestler who ultimately became a Navy SEAL, while the bookish Will worked the gay men's health crisis phone lines at night. Point is, they could not have been more different, and yet a beautiful relationship emerged. This book is a powerful treatise on what friendship is and what's required for intimacy, particularly over the span of years when we drop in and out of each other's lives. This is also true in a culture where there aren't many examples of friendships between gay and straight men or between straight men and women either. We explore all of this. Let's get to our conversation. as you know, a huge Will Schwabi fan. So any chance to dive into your world and your life book club is one of my favorite books. So beautiful. And so I loved visiting with you in in this book, which is not, I just want to say at the outset, it's not plot driven. So don't worry as we talk about Will and Maxie and their friends, we're not going to ruin your pleasure in the book. (laughs) That's a nice, very nice way of putting it. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful, subtle book about friendship. And and I had so many thoughts. And there's so many strange synchronicities. Like I've actually been to Eleuthera and Wallace Stegner is my absolute favorite, which I think I knew about you from or knew about your mom. And then I was I also loved The Agony and the Ecstasy, Chris Maxey's favorite book. I just wanted to throw that out there. I, I don't know why random. that book took me. I, I was shocked when when my friend Maxie told me that was his favorite book, but I'm equally shocked that you said you loved it. Well, I think you described it as like a book that maybe your parents had in their like a dusty book in their library. And I think the same was for me. Like, I think I just found it on a bored summer day in Montana and read it and was captivated by this by this. What do you even call that genre? Like a. It's the kind of literary equivalent of a biopic, but I don't know what it's called. <laughs> I think I I know how, why I found my way to it, and it may actually be why Maxi found his way to it, is it was around that time when I was growing up that a book like Couples by John Updike had a certain amount of sex in it that you would kind of find. I mean, it's hard to believe that we read John Updike to try to find yeah. sex. There was definitely Fear of Flying. People had that on there. Mm-hmm. Erica Jong, but I think so. I was probably going through the shelf as a bored preteen. <laughs> the agony and the ecstasy sounded like there was going to be very salacious content in there, and it yeah, really, no, really... I'm sure you're right. No, it has been another book revelation that just tickles me is the number of bookish women. So I've read, I've heard this from Roxanne Gay, I think Maggie Nielsen, even. The Clan of the Cave Bear. Did you ever read the Jean M. Owl? I don't even know how to say her last name. Clan of (laughs) Earth People series. Yes. I read that. I loved those books. I mean, all it is is sex, 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 sex. Those are sexy. (laughs) Yes, those are. If you're reading Updike for the sex scenes, it's not the same as Clan of the Cave Bear. No. And I'm shocked that my parents either didn't comment or notice that I was reading like the mammoth hunter. I mean, I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I was fascinated. I didn't really know what it was, but, and the descriptions were terrible, but, but anyway, I just wanted to, to talk about the 
funny synchronicities of, um, and then of course I went to Yale, but before we even get to Yale and, and that experience, were you the person who gave Ben, my brother, his first, did you facilitate that or did he work for you as his first book job? So your brother, Ben, of whom I am just the most epic personal and professional fan, (laughs) he's such a dear friend and someone I admire so much. Ben knew my cousin's child. They were friends. My dear cousin had a a couple. They had had a niece or something. And Ben was a great friend of this niece. Is this Debbie? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so my cousin, who's a marvelous person who sort of fixes everything for everybody all the time, called me up and said, there's this extraordinary young man and he's working in finance. (laughs) He hates hates it. Will you talk to him about publishing? It's his heart's desire. So he came in and we discovered we had gone to St. Paul School together. I mean, not together. He was much younger than me, but, but we had both gone there. And he was so funny and smart and great. And it was clear he should be in publishing. And there was an editor, a very talented editor, who had an opening for an assistant. So I recommended to Ben that he apply for that opening. But I did say, from finance to publishing, (laughs) you're going to have an 80% salary cut. And he kind of (laughs) laughed. And then I said, no, that's the real number. It's an 80% salary cut, which he took. And then his career was like a rocket and she promoted him and I promoted him. And then he was taken away by another house. And he's now, as you know, one of the most successful publishers in the business. Oh, Ben is the best. And it still makes me, I remember those days when, well, it's interesting because so like you and Ben, I went to St. Paul's and then I went to Yale and it was interesting to read about sort of your struggling with what to do with your life, because I I think this is probably true of everyone, but I felt also a certain amount of pressure to graduate and perform and to live up in some ways to my education. And I remember Ben ending up in M&A because that's, that was sort of what you did, hmm. which is sad. Well, it was one of the only ways to afford a New York City existence. And yeah. then watching him with some relief and also anxiety as he navigated to a, as you mentioned, a much less remunerative field, but he's- Much less remunerative. But just <laughs> continue down this track briefly. And and it's one of the things I love and one of the things I, why I really want to celebrate the idea of friendship and friends and old friends is my husband, David, who readers will get to know in this book a little bit. When he was starting in the fashion business in the US, he'd had a big fashion career in Hong Kong, but had to totally start over in the US. And there was a wonderful man who really took David under his wing and became a friend and a mentor. And this man happened to have family and deep roots in Montana. And his uh, dearest friend is an extraordinary woman who's a lawyer in Missoula who helped write the Montana Constitution, who is very <laughs> dear friends with your parents. I uh, know. I forgot about that. <laughs> so I had this route to Ben, but David had this route to your parents. Um, yeah. And just to sort of keep, you know, these things going and going and going, as you mentioned, the The book I wrote about my mother and her death was called The End of Your Life Book Club. And a lot of the book is my kind of appreciation of palliative care, not just as help for people dying, but as a way to help people living. So I got Mm -hmm. drawn into the palliative care 
world and met an incredibly inspiring man named Dr. Ira Bayak, who is one of the creators <laughs> of palliative care as we know it today, who also was dear friends with your parents. Um, yes. And I grew up with his daughters and Sacha has been on the podcast. I mean, it's such... <laughs> yeah. All roads lead to Rome or something. I don't know. But to me, that's sort of one of the joys of friendship is meeting the friends of friends of friends. And then it all eventually comes around. Isn't that interesting? I, and I'm sure you feel this even more acutely, but I feel like my, in some ways, obviously there are these distributed connective nets and I can't express to, to people listening, even how strange it was that my brother and I ended up in boarding school in New Hampshire. It wasn't, we did not come from that tradition. It's not like we were the, this waspy blue blood family at all. It was this kind of wild move based on this strange scholarship for kids from Montana specifically called the Cook Scholarship. And my brother won that. I didn't, which stung. But so the fact that our world overlapped is also exceptionally odd. I grew up in a small town in Montana. But this is life, right? Like, I think this is one of the really beautiful parts of getting older is starting to see the connective web or that net emerge. And suddenly you're like, my world is getting, even as it gets larger, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller in a really beautiful way. And the way that people reemerge, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the, the reasons why I really wanted to write this book is because those strange experiences, whether it's a boarding school that for some crazy circumstance, you wind up moving from Montana to go to this 500 person <laughs> colony in the colds of New Hampshire, or whether it's your first job where you are thrown together in, in tight circumstance with people from different backgrounds and different talents and different professions, or whether it's this crazy thing that I wrote about, a secret society at Yale where the 15 most different kids were thrown together. Really believe those experiences can be among the most valuable in your life because they break through the assumptions we make about each other. They put you in, in intense relationship with people who are very much unlike you and give mm -hmm. you a set of circumstances that you can build on for the rest of your life. So as you start to know each other's friends, you continue to meet people who are ever more different from you. And it's something that after a certain sort of life gets a certain patina and you get to a certain age, you really appreciate more and more, I think. Yeah, no, that's beautifully said. And there's something... Let's talk about secret societies, because there's something about that forced intimacy, which obviously netted some really different. I mean, the book is about Chris Maxey. And I know we don't want to lionize his and we can talk about sort of the way we lionize our friends. I thought that was really a beautiful moment. But he was a Navy SEAL. You guys could wrestler, like Olympic level wrestler, right? You guys could not have been more dramatically different. It's funny, I was thinking about tracing my own life in context to yours. And at, at St. Paul's, the boarding school we went to, there was so much forced intimacy. It's not very big. You just end up, it's like a, I just felt like we were put through a colander again and again until we actually found our people. And I had amazing friends from St. Paul's because I was forced, I probably spent six months alone for six months, because I'm not, I don't like, I'm not good at making, I'm more like you, I'd rather read and be reclusive. And I'm don't, I, I, it all makes me awkward. And at Yale, I was really, um, I let myself socially fall through the cracks. Like I had very few friends. And 
I wouldn't say I was lonely at all because I like being by myself, but I wasn't in a secret society. I didn't join anything. (laughs) I very much sort of skated through the top. And I was aware of secret societies. And reading your book, I was like, oh, I wish I had, not that you can, you're chosen, to be clear, but it made me a little sad, a little wistful that I wasn't put into a forced intimacy with 14 other people. Are all of the secret societies the same, or some of them are a little bit more patriarchal, right? This is oh, a yeah, special yeah. They one. They a different shtick. And I yeah. have this image of secret societies, which was the <laughs> skull and bones image, which yes. was you know, the the George Herbert Walker Bush kind of people would be in it, and it would be obnoxious sort of future trust fundy frat broy type people leaders of the free world yeah yeah and so i never occurred to me that i would be in a a secret society and as you know from reading the book i was a classics major i (laughs) came out of the closet as a gay man the last day of high school and so i arrived at yale out which actually not many of us were in 19 80 when I started. And in fact, at St. Paul's school, there had never been an out student or faculty member in the history of the school. So, you know, I didn't come out while at school. I came out at a graduation party because it seemed Same with my brother. (laughs) (laughs) It was Um, an oopsie daisy too. He had an oopsie daisy too. Yeah, that was funny. I'm I'm, I'm in... uh, the, the, the person who accidentally or purposefully outed me is still one of my dearest friends, and I tease him about it all the time, the story I tell in the book. So I arrived at, at, at Yale, joined this this gay group. We were quite isolated at Yale. There was an air of violence. It was a, a very different time in the country. I mean, things like the murder of Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone were very fresh. Anita Bryant's campaign against gay people, very fresh. And in fact, there were basically no laws to protect us whatsoever. There was only one state in the entire country that had a law against firing people for being gay. Mm. Uh, 49 did not. And I could go on and on with that. So I got more out, more gay. I had this, um, I went to Los Angeles, took some time off from school. I worked in the movie business, hung out in bars every night. I came back a very extreme version of myself with a leather <laughs> armband. I, I wanted my hair to look like Prince or Adam Ant, So it was permed down the center and shaved on the sides. And I wore a turquoise acid washed t-shirt, <laughs> jean jacket. And so I kind of went about my defiant way. It never occurred to me that I would be tapped by a secret society. It just never occurred to me. But the one that tapped me has a unique charge that it set for itself. It's one of the oldest secret societies. It's in one of those massive stone tombs outside of campus where there are no windows you can see into, so you don't know what goes on. It's wealthy enough, the secret society, that you don't pay a single cent to be a member of it. And it set as its charge to bring together the 15 most different kids at Yale. So we just decided we're going to choose the 15 kids who are totally unlike each other with the hope that none of them have ever met each other. And they will have to have dinner together twice a week for a year and tell each other their entire life stories. And that was what this one was at. And I should add one very important thing, too, which is the day that Yale admitted women, this secret society admitted women. So it was totally co-ed. 
And I, at the time, was working as an AIDS activist. I was um, spending time doing things for gay men's health crisis in New York, even though I was at Yale. I was working on the nascent AIDS Project New Haven AIDS hotline. So I had my school life, but I also had this very serious life outside of school. So I was going to have like very little tolerance or patience for anything that worked my nerves. And I arrive at this thing and there's a bunch of great kids and this one super loud, obnoxious jock named Chris Maxey. And that's why I got called the book, We Should Not Be Friends, is I decided, like, we should not be friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not going to work. I don't I don't want to have anything to do with this guy. And we became friends. And, and over the last 40 years, he's become one of the most important people in my life. I love this guy. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I just want to take one quick detour into your work just to, just to remind people of what was going on with it. AIDS in some ways is a almost a third character in this book, this drumbeat of fear and endless mourning and grief. You write, the writer Andrew Holleran described living as a gay man in the 1980s as being like attending, quote, a very nice dinner party with friends, except some of them were taken out and shot while the rest of us were expected to go on eating, end quote. Years later, when I tried to tell Maxie what my life was like in the years right after graduation, I talked about the staggering number of people I knew who died from AIDS but I did make sure to emphasize that the decade was also like a very nice party. I was enraged and worried and grieving, but I also had fun with friends and took holidays, read books and saw movies. But, and I don't know if COVID for you, maybe the very, very early days, I know you're in New York, but this so much, right, of your so many years of not even understanding how it was transmitted, only that it was primarily affecting gay men, I can't imagine. Do you feel like you could possibly in a lifetime work that out of your body, that anxiety and grief? No, I can't. And and yeah. to some degree, a fair amount of this book, you're right, AIDS is almost like a third character. And it's because I'm still working my way through it every day. COVID did bring back some, some very strong feelings but it also brought with it a really intense sadness mm. because it it made very clear the memory of of going through this horrific cataclysmic tragic and horrible thing essentially alone it reminded me of there was a a blackout a couple of years ago that only affected a small part of Manhattan for some reason. It was the area around Lincoln Center. And so Lincoln Center was absolutely dark. There wasn't a light on. The Nothing was working. The subways, everything. It was catastrophe there. And 10 blocks away, people are in restaurants and carrying on with their things and, and everything's fine. COVID, at least as a nation, we were seemingly to go through it together before we started to like blow apart and 
yeah. get back to our usual divides. But the thing that was so, one of the things that was so horrific about AIDS was that feeling of going through it alone or alone in tandem with such a small number of people. And that was one of the things I would be at Yale. I was a college student and I would take my classes and do this and that. And then I would go to the AIDS Project New Haven hotline and try to say something useful to someone sobbing on the other end of the phone because they had just found a lesion or they were worried they were going to get deported. Or in one extreme case, which was a call I took in New York on gay men's health crisis line, someone literally who's in their tiny apartment, their lover was dead next to them in bed and they couldn't find a funeral home that would come take mm -hmm. the body. And another point that I really wanted this book to bring across about that era, which is so important to me, is I think it's hard for people who didn't live through it to understand how unbelievably long it went on for. Yeah. That in fact, between the first time I became aware of AIDS in the first years of the 1980s, and when there was actually a test to see if you had HIV, was, I think it was seven years or something. It was an enormous amount of time. And even then, and I may have that year wrong, I, I do wind in my own head. I, I some, some aspects of it I don't like to look back on, but it was a, such a long period of time. And once they had the test, they still had nothing to do with that information. So I think the challenge of the lens of COVID was this horrible global cataclysm that one year later we had a vaccine for. I know. And that's just one of the great accomplishments of science and humankind. And it was made possible somewhat on the backs of AIDS and AIDS research and the idea of drugs into bodies. And, but the sheer number of years that we just had to live with it. And we had to live with friends getting sick and friends dying and funerals, but we also had our jobs and we went on vacations and we had dinner parties and went to movies. And I was trying to convey what an incredibly long period of time that was. So that was my entire twenties. Yeah. Like my entire twenties was that. And the kind of drumbeat in the back of it was having been very sexually active as a young man, including with people who I was certain later got full-blown AIDS. There was this sense like, just am I next? And one yeah. thing I talked about in the book was one of the early signs was swollen glands. And I used to feel the glands on my neck all the time. And they would get more and more swollen. And finally, I went to the doctor and I said, oh, my God, see how swollen the glands in my neck are. And this was long before there was a test or anything. And he said, well, how long, how often do you check them? And I said, like, oh, like every hour. And he's like, oh, my goodness, would you stop poking your glands? <laughs> you're, you're making them swell. Just leave them alone. And sure enough, 24 hours later, they were fine. Yeah. No, I thought you 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 talked about that really beautifully sort of that tension between look how amazing look how privileged I am like coming out of Yale etc what am I going to do with my life bumping up against this idea that you would be dead soon and and not in a melodramatic way in a very real way and I think you know it's it's interesting when we think about that that 
you, there was a whole generation, more than one generation, probably, of gay men who are gone. And I don't know that we'll ever really understand the cultural impact of that or the impact on younger generations who don't have as many. I wonder, I mean, this, this, maybe this is a wild thought, but I wonder sort of also what's going on now is like, well, this is actually a more accurate representation of what our collective is like in terms of its diversity of the bi- the gender binary spectrum and sexuality. We just have, we're missing a lot of people who died from AIDS. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a wild thought, but no, I mean, we're missing these people. And one of the things I always emphasize, and it's this is, you know, from quite a narrow perspective, but I think an important one is that we lost an astonishing number of writers and dancers Mm -hmm. and composers, but we also lost the audience Mm. that that a huge number of people who loved books and dance and art and opera and all sorts of artistic expression. And so the the, the loss on both sides is very, very hard to, to grapple with. I do notice a kind of epidemic of despair among 60 plus year old gay men at this moment. And I think some of that is survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of it. Sure. It's complicated. It's so complicated. Um, yeah, and I will say yeah. I, when I talk about gay men, a lot of trans people died from AIDS and have the same relationship to it. A lot of women died of AIDS, and they are not always counted or mentioned. And the experience that I had of working on AIDS hotlines, the AIDS caregivers and activists, the ranks had tons of women, particularly lesbians, but not exclusively in it, and trans folk. And it was this generational cataclysm that that affected a ton of different people. I thought it was, and it's probably, I've just, there's like a paucity in my own reading, but for me, it was like one of the fuller experiences of that period of time. So thank you for that. And then I thought, in the context of Chris Maxey, who you chose of all these 14 people. And obviously some of these people are your good. I wonder if any of them are jealous. Maybe Singer is a little jealous. <laughs> he's not the primary subject of your book. But Singer, Singer loves think- the book. Actually, Singer is our biggest fan. Singer is so all in. It's a riot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the thing that's really, I think, will be affirming for people is that this isn't the story about two thick as thieves friends who called each other every time you were in town and sought each other out regularly and consistently. This is about the ebbs and flows of a friendship over decades and revelations really later about the ways that you you in particular had tried to create distance from him, right? This, can you talk a little bit about that? And your sort of own the way that you had to come up against like your own feelings of whether of why was this guy friends with me and your own aversion to intimacy. Yeah. So and I'm so happy you picked up on that because that's really, really important, which is Chris is not my best friend and I am not Chris's best friend. We are dear friends and we love each other and we've become increasingly important to each other. But this is to kind of celebrate the sort of friendship that we all have. We, we, you know, we all have people in our lives who are incredibly important to us, who 
you know, maybe we go a decade without seeing them sometimes or, you know, a couple of years sometimes. Sometimes it's a decade. We find each other. We lose each other. As I write, we find ourselves and we lose ourselves. But because of some kind of intense experience, and in our case, it was the secret society, when we come back together, there's all we go right to what's important that we can cut right through everything. Now, all that said, Chris Maxey has a much more open heart than I have. Mm -hmm. And he's a much more vulnerable, less guarded person. And I, despite you know, writing books and running around and talking about them, I'm a very private person. I'm a very defensive person. I'm a very anxious person. I'm a very interior person, meaning both what I keep locked up inside me, but also the fact that I'm never so happy as when I'm alone in my bedroom with a book. <laughs> like that's bliss. So one of the things that I really wanted to get across in this book is I document some of the ways that Maxie was prejudiced against me. Mm -hmm. She fully admits and has totally overcome, but I was way more prejudiced against him. I made all sorts of assumptions about him because he was a jock, because he was in the military, because he was straight all of these assumptions about who he was and who he wanted to be. And what I try to chronicle in the book is I had to get over myself. And I had to get over myself not once, but many times. And periodically through our relationship, I would kind of imagine a slight. And then like he came to town and he didn't call me. And rather than just say, yeah, Maxie, you know, I'd love to see you. Call me next time you're in town. I would shut down the friendship in order to keep myself from being hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that repeatedly. And one of the other ironies, and, and this is not a spoiler alert, is that for very, very, very many years, Maxie had absolutely no trouble saying to me, I love you, Schwalbs. Mm -hmm. Straight guy telling his gay friend, I love you. I couldn't say it back. I couldn't do it. I could only do it at, at the last couple of years. And it was a huge breakthrough for me. And I think part of it was growing up as a as a gay boy who the idea of saying to like a macho straight person, I love you, like fist in face two seconds later. So let's not do that. I projected onto Maxie the kind of person who would react that way, even though he always told me he loved me. Yeah. And so a lot of the book is about getting over myself. Yeah. But it was, I thought, so well articulated and teased out that anxiety that you had and carried throughout your life, not just with Maxie, but, you know, that moment at the beginning where he is like, insists that you get on his motorcycle so he can drive you back however many years and you're like, or hours and you're like, I'm gonna have to put my arms, I'm gonna have to be in phys close physical proximity. And you're like, does he think that I'm turned on? And I mean, oh, this, no. the, the mind gymnastics, which are completely understandable. And absolutely. The yeah. mind gymnastics of like, if I, it was, that was the key moment in our friendship. Like he's like, get on the back of the motorcycle, he threw the helmet at me, I threw it on my head. And I was like, holy crap. Like, if I don't put my arms around him, I'm going to fall off the motorcycle and die. If I put my <laughs> arms around him, what if he thinks I'm coming on to him? But if I don't yeah. put my arms around him, will he think I'm not putting my arms around him because <laughs> I think that he will think that I'm coming on to him. But then he like revved up the motorcycle and I'm like, I better put my arms around this guy. And just Bruce Springsteen in my head, the motorcycle screeching out of the driveway because he's a maniac. And I just had to, for once in my life, stop thinking and just hold yeah. on for too long. 
life. And that's when we really became friends. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. It's interesting to think about these long friendships, and there's something about being forged in college and boarding school or high school and before where there's no element. I was thinking about this. Like, you guys could not have more different lives. He's a former Navy SEAL who runs a school in the Bahamas that sounds amazing. And I love all of his thinking about education because I feel the same. I love that only three, one of his four children went to college. And... And the way that he thinks about transcripts, and I'm completely with him. But there's something about all of these friends, right, where they're in completely different – there's no transaction. There's no transactional quality to these relationships. And I think about a lot of – I don't know. Maybe I'm strange for thinking about that. But I am always sort of like, what do people – why do they want to be my friend? And what do they want from me? And I don't know if you do that calculus or if everyone does that calculus. Maybe I'm weird, but there's something about these early friendships that predate that of any, there's no use, right? There's no use. There's no use in these. (laughs) Yeah, that's part of the reason I think why they're so precious. There was a book years ago where I loved the title, which was the title was, I think, something like The Girls with the Grandmother Faces. And, you know, I don't know what people see when they look at Maxie and me, but I see the kid with the perm and the stupid turquoise acid leather jacket. And I see the soon to be, you know, the the, the jock wrestler with the arms that don't fit through his Lacoste shirts because they're so big. Like I see us the way I did the very first time we met. And I think I see our our characters that way. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes me really sad is when you think someone's a friend And then you find out it was transactional. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we can't ask things of each other and ask favors and do things for each other. It's just that can't be the basis of a friendship. It can't be it can't be a favor bank. And that's one of the joys of of old friends. And it's also one of the joys of friends who come from totally different worlds. No, and it really can't, it can't be overstated. And these people, even though throughout the book, you're sort of you're trying to be I think you said, you you write, I, had also, I also thought about how since college I had gradually become aware of many ways that I wanted to be more like Maxie. I wanted to stop caring quite so much what everyone thought about me and instead just be satisfied when I was doing the right thing. You keep going. And then you said, also, I sensed that Maxie held in his mind a picture of me that was better than I really was. I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be a better friend, less judgmental and less afraid. And 
it seems like in some ways, Maxie, like throughout this book is just, you know, at the very beginning, he's like, I will beat up anyone who hurts you, even though at times he was maybe the one who hurt you. But this like, come on, Will, like sit in my lap, like, let me support you, let me hold you and be there. And it's interesting that it took you 40 years 40 to years. really do that. Yeah, <laughs> he did. And because I admire Maxie so much, I mean, he has an open heart and mm -hmm. he's a protector and he loves unreservedly and he keeps an eye out for other people. And and his business about joining the Navy SEALs, which is very complicated and, and we I talk about a lot because over the years, only very much in later years did he open up to me. But he wanted to be physically active and he loved the ocean, but he wanted to be of service. He wanted to be useful. He wanted to put everything he'd been given, his privilege, his physical strength, his agility, his brains. And I really admire that. And then he wanted to found this school and he wanted to be useful again. And, and he wants to save the environment and protect young people. And so this, this, this loud, obnoxious jock has this huge heart. And it took me a really, really long time before I was capable of not just accepting it, but understanding that. Yeah. And accepting, like he talks about how, I mean, this this made me laugh, but he was like, I'm a shallow person. And he's not, right? Like there's like a, a depth to him, but he doesn't have your same interiority. He's into, it's expressed in, in everything, or that's how I read him. Like he is who he fair, is. Um, we, at that moment in the book, and it's, <laughs> I love that you cited that because it's one of my favorite moments. It may be my single favorite. Is It's a conversation we had just a couple of years ago where we're like, we we realize that that even after almost 40 years, we don't know each other that well. <laughs> and we come to the realization that there's not that much to know, that we're actually both very shallow people. And, and we we and we celebrate that fact. Like it is kind of what you see is what you get with both of us. And that's part of the reason we're friends, is you know, there's sometimes they say still waters run deep, but sometimes they don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's simple, but not. Like he's too. simple We're with both. like, yeah, an incredible yeah, amount no. of depth. We're yeah. Pretty simple people. And it's also funny too, because we just, we enjoy things. We're, we're, but, but he does, he's doesn't have many of the hangups that I have. Like one theme is you cited throughout the book is I actually really don't like to touch people. Like I don't like <laughs> it. I don't, I don't like to hug. I barely like I like to shake hands. I kind of like to nod in people's general direction. Yeah, when totally. When I see Maxie, he gives me this enormous bear hug, which I hate. His wife, Pam, does it. And now his kids have started doing it. <laughs> like, give me hugs. <laughs> and I'm like, I really hate that. But they insist on it. I don't think that like your brother hug me. I think I shake his hand. I don't think Ben likes, he doesn't like physical affection either. I don't so. think he likes either. No. Yeah, no, I don't think, I don't remember the last time he hugged me. Okay. I feel like he, it's he, like, he gives me like a gentle back pat sort of okay. from a yeah, distance. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's very funny. Yeah, I think we're very well matched <laughs> in that. But, you know, what I mean about being shallow is you could read a lot into that. You know, maybe a therapist could have a field day with that. Or you could just say, maybe I just don't, maybe I just don't like that. And yeah. that's okay too. Yeah. Well, I think that there's probably, yeah, if I were to, to therapize you, which is my favorite, it's like that there you, you learn to like, in some ways to give yourself with abandon and potentially like life-threatening 
repercussions, but to otherwise like physically hold yourself back. I think it's a restraint. I mean, it, it might be since birth, but I think it's probably also part of this conditioning, right? Or at least that's how I observed my brother, like just that awareness. Like you, you mentioned the best little boy in the world, right? Like the performative perfectionism to keep yourself safe or boundary. That's very true. That that book yeah. spoke to me very deeply as a young person when I read it and later. And it's incredibly astute to that book, which yeah. is if I'm elected class president and I do this and I do that and I volunteer for this thing and I volunteer for that person and I then then no one will see who I really am, which was the gay part, which is the part we had to keep hidden growing yeah. up. So yeah. there is something very protective about it. A conversation that I hope this book sparks because it's such a fun conversation is the conversation about like gay men being friends with straight men, yeah. but also straight women being friends with straight men, like being, you know, being friends, like a lot of times writings on friendship talk about women and their best friends or straight men and their like bro friends or even gay men and their gay friends. But I would love to see more writing about friendships across these artificial gender lines. Yeah. I'd say that in the past, four out of five trips to the grocery store that I've made were for snacks for my kids, which is one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to have Hungry Root in my life. Hungry Root is a different type of meal delivery company. In fact, you can't describe it like that at all, really. It's a grocery store delivery meets meal delivery, covering off on all the bases so you really, really don't have to go to the store at all. Hungry Root is a service that fills your fridge with healthy food and simple recipes so that you can take the stress out of meal planning and meal prep. And they help you avoid food waste by determining exactly what you're going to make and what you need in order to make it. Hungry Root is actually magic, like snapping your fingers and having all your recipe searching, grocery shopping, and meal planning done for you. You take a fun, short quiz. Hungry Root gets to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat along with which kitchen appliances you actually use. Then they recommend groceries based on your preferences, whether it's fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks, and more. They have all the snacks that my kids love, like fruit jerky, perfect snacks, peanut butter bars, parm crisps, and Simple Mills crackers. And the recipes and supplies that they recommend are also kid-pleasers, too. In this last round, we made a peanut lemongrass tofu jasmine rice bowl, which Max loved, and chicken and guacamole burritos. Simple, delicious, and the right amount of healthy. Hungry Root goes beyond your weekly grocery haul with thousands of easy recipes that actually put your groceries to good use before they get forgotten in the back of your fridge. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Pulling the Thread listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to hungryroot.com slash thread to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's hungryroot.com slash thread. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Growing up, I mean, Anne's kids, who we mentioned, the lawyer who wrote her two boys, they were our best friends. Her youngest son was my very, very, very best friend. And we 
sort of had a fissure in high school and then have become friendly again, which is of great relief. But throughout my life, most, if not many of, in fact, when I first met my husband, I assumed he just wanted to be friends because so many of almost, not all, but a vast majority of my close friends were men. And it's interesting, sort of, not even, in a way, I think I've always desexualized myself, which is a whole nother conversation. But it never really felt present. Like I never was confused about anyone's intentions until I was on a date with my husband. And I was like, we're just going to have to get really drunk because I have no idea what's happening here. I don't know if this is the date because to me, my most valued friendships, maybe that's not fair, but many of my closest friendships, I don't want to offend any of my girlfriends, but were with (laughs) the guys in my life. There was a freedom there once- I don't know. It was it, it's, it's a powerful thing. And, and yet when, you know, not to endlessly criticize Hollywood, although that God knows that's fun. But for the most part, if you're watching a TV show, yeah, whether it's moonlighting or something else, if there is a guy and a girl at some point in the series, there will be a will they or won't they mo- moment. Totally. It's so true. The way that 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 is cast on all intersexual intergender relationships that and eventually someone will fall or someone will develop feelings. And I can attest, I have never hooked up with one of my guy friends. Yeah, yeah. Never. It's never even come. I mean, that's never happened. It's never even been on the table. Yeah. And it's funny. So one of the questions um, that I wanted to, you know, put out in the book, Chris is a very handsome guy. He's all American. He's a jock. I never was attracted to him. Yeah. And I run through this little list in the book of who I like, like, Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon. I love Matt Dillon so much. Have you Always met Matt have. Dillon? Oh, what's that? Do you know him? No. I was at a party with him, a tiny, tiny party. There were like eight people and I just couldn't. I couldn't. Oh, couldn't. well. I mean, you don't really want to talk. You, you want your... Yeah, your, it ruins it. It ruins yeah. it. I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't. I'm sure he's a fabulous human being. I Even when Zoetrope Studios went bankrupt, I bought his blue jean jacket from The Outsiders. But then I was worried <laughs> that at some point he would come over to my apartment and he'd see it and he'd be creeped out by it. Um, <laughs> so I donated it to The Outsiders Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it's now on display. Oh, um, look at you. Yeah. But then, I, you know, I was sort of like, like, I like goths and wan esthetes and like punk rockers. And, uh, you know, these I had this catalog of, of counterculture types. But so it was, per, you know, Maxie was my friend. Like, he just was always yeah. my friend. And I wanted to make that clear at the beginning of the yeah. book. But it's even funny. He's so comfortable in his own skin. I proposed a piece for Modern Love about Maxie and me. They haven't taken it. But I was like, <laughs> I'm like, Maxie, do you mind if I write a piece for Modern Love about us? And he's like, nah, sure. <laughs> well, he's very affirmed in his masculinity, but he just he's seems very, very comfortable in his, in his body. Yeah, like his physicality and like he just seems very at home. Yes, and he has you know women friends and he has like, he's just a very, he's very comfortable in his skin. Yep. Yeah. Well, I loved, I I think it's a, I'm with you. I think it's a really, it's so many worlds untapped, not only in, in books and music, but I think that there is still this cultural re- re- reservation or this idea that men and women can't be alone together without an element of sexuality that drives me personally bonkers. And yes. so I'm all about mainstreaming that idea. 
this part also struck me because like you, you know, you write about how you introduced him as your friend, Chris Maxey, the Navy SEAL, which is like fascinating and in, in of itself, right? As particularly in contrast to, to who you are in the world. But you write, I thought of the need so many of us have to lionize the people in our lives, introducing them to others by what they do and not who they are. If our friends do amazing things with their lives, it's as if that makes us amazing too, reflected glory. Why isn't it enough that our friends are just our friends? And I thought that was so true. And culturally, it's still our first instinct. Like I find myself doing it all the time. And then I try to catch myself, what do you do? Or giving... Like, it's the primary piece of context. How do we change that? I mean, it's very, first of all, it's very American because traveling in, in France in particular, they're horrified by it. Like, you don't ask people what they do, as I understand it. Someone may come on, correct me. But as I understand it, you don't volunteer what you do and you don't ask what you do. Now, granted, a lot of people in, in France knew each other from very early age. They have that marvelous crash system. So there's other things going on. But it's I consider it a somewhat... American vice. And there's there's an even worse layer to it, which is not only do we tend to say, you know, here's my friend Dave, instead of just saying he's an architect. So here's my friend Dave. He's the most amazing architect or he's a brilliant <laughs> architect. He's, you know, one of the greatest architects you'll ever meet. Like, And I think what Dave winds up feeling is what if, a everyone has imposter syndrome. So even if he is going to feel like, actually, I'm not. But he probably isn't. I mean, it's not I am pay, he's Dave. Right. So I think it, it, it makes, you know, you had brought up earlier this sense of transactionality and how yeah. friendships without transactionality. And I think when we introduce people by what they do and mention how good they are at what they do, we, we are saying to the world that we value people for what they accomplish and what they can do for us. Mm. And my goal in introducing friends now, and I'm actually pretty good at it. So, and I, cause I really practice it is I introduced people by a character trait or an interest. Mm. So I might say, I want you to meet Dave. He's so loyal that once when the following thing happened, he did this. Mm. Or I want you to meet my dear friend, Ben. He's obsessed with birding. He just got back <laughs> from Madagascar. You know, or I want you to meet, you know, Eddie. He makes lemon meringue pie that has the stiffest meringue peaks I've ever <laughs> seen. <in my> life. <laughs> and actually people enjoy that. They're like, oh my God, lemon meringue pie. I love it. Or birding. That's interesting. Tell me about that. Or... I, loyalty is such an important trait to me. So it's sort of, we should love our friends for who they are, not what they do. Mm, because what you do can change. You can lose your job. You can be fired. But but who you are doesn't change. And mm. one of the other points that I really, really want to get across in this book is I believe we can be friends with so many more people than we think. So many more different kinds of people, but, and it's a really important caveat, they need to share our values. Mm. We can't be friends with everyone because we will find people in life who do not share our values. 
And we may be very close to them in all sorts of ways. We may have gone to the same schools and grown up in the same neighborhoods. On paper, we may look like pals. But I think a lot more people share our values than we think do. And that's what I discovered with Chris Maxey. At one point, I talk about the Maxey code. I love his values. No, he seems amazing. And the school, I love the school. is an amazing place. And he's imbuing these values in kids. And I think... It's a funny thing to say, but there's one part of the book that makes me cry. And it's not a part I wrote. It's a part Maxi wrote. And it's about a kayak trip that oh, he yes. takes on who hates him because the kid is gay and the kid makes all sorts of assumptions about who Maxi is based on all the same external assumptions that I made. And the kid finds out that Maxi is this awesome, loving, supportive guy who has a dear friend who's gay. And it, it, it cracks the kid open in a way. I love Will Schwabe and I love the way that our lives improbably, truly have overlapped and intersected in so many different and strange ways. And he's one of those people, as you could probably tell, who's delightful and who can just sort of drop into a level of intimacy with regardless of when you last saw him, even as much as he maintains that intimacy for him is hard. He writes, at the end, I thought about how Maxie and I had started on such different paths. His talents were physical and he loved to compete. His whole life had steered him toward other people. Only around them could he be peak Maxie. He'd also lost a third of his family as a child, only later finding the clan he craved. I was a kid who'd lived largely inside my head, scared of spending too much time with others in case they got to know the part of me I felt I couldn't reveal. So I hid in plain sight, spending endless hours with others, but only comfortable in my room, alone, or with one or two carefully chosen friends. Then, just a few years after I came out, being with people took on a whole new cast and when sex began to equal death. Nothing was safer than a book. What I think is really beautiful about this book, We Should Not Be Friends, is that you'll find yourself in there, whether you're Maxie or you're Will or you're one of the other characters who drop in on their lives. It's a really beautiful example of two people who couldn't seem more opposite finding so much in common. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.
celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of colors starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.